Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To get more programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll only find on Reels Channel. Alternative rock guitarist Dave Navarro hits the stage in the 1980s, fronting bands like Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, becoming a music icon. But before the cheers reach him on stage at age 15, Dave experiences a tragic murder in the family. After a night out, Connie Navarro and Sue Jory realize an intruder is in Connie's apartment. The assailant grabs a pillow and blasts two gunshots. Sue hears this. She goes running up the stairs. And she's shot in the jaw. Dave Navarro loses both his mother and her close friend in a double homicide. Dave was not only overwhelmed with guilt, he became suicidal. A manhunt begins to find the murderer. But the culprit vanishes. It's hard to catch people that have resources. He had money, and he was organized. So the FBI turns to the public for help. They needed that one tip that would bring justice to the Navarro family. But will this double murderer ever be brought to justice? Or will he kill again? He said, no locks are going to keep me out of your house. At around 10.45, one quiet night in March of 1983, three muffled gunshots are heard coming from a West L.A. condominium. Two women lay dead inside. One the mother of a future rock star. Today, her son, Dave Navarro, guitarist for Jane's Addiction, thrills audiences with his unique style of play. Within this multi-talented performer, though, lies a tortured soul. As a teenager, Dave loses the family member he cherishes most taken from him by a violent, jealous man, driven to kill. Longtime girlfriends Connie Navarro, age 41, and Sue Jory, age 42, return home from their night out in West Los Angeles. Donna Brent, former America's Most Wanted producer. Connie ran upstairs for something in her bedroom, and she was confronted by an intruder. There was an argument. John Lieberman, former America's Most Wanted reporter. The assailant grabs a pillow, puts it in front of Connie, and blasts two gunshots right into Connie, killing her. Sue Jory hears this. She goes running up the stairs to the bedroom, and she's shot in the jaw. A bullet goes out her neck. He drags Connie's body into the linen closet and as she's gasping for her last breath he covers her face with the pillow and then Sue's body was dragged by the assailant into Connie's bedroom the following day Connie's ex-husband Mike Navarro decides to check in with her when Connie does not answer his calls he makes a visit to her home but no one answers the door so he lets himself into the condo At this point, Connie's ex-husband got extremely concerned. 
After calling out for Connie, Mike Navarro climbs up the stairs to the second floor and makes a horrifying discovery. He saw Connie's body stuffed into the linen closet, her feet sticking out. He found her best friend, Sue, shot at close range, murdered in cold blood. A devastated Mike Navarro calls 911 immediately. Police arrive to the scene, and one of the first things that Mike tells police is, he got them. That son of a bitch got them both. Navarro clearly believes he can identify the killer. But his first instinct is to protect his 15-year-old son, David. Wednesday is the night he routinely shares with his mother. But by sheer luck, Dave stays with his father the night of the murders. Mike and a police officer go back to Mike's home, where Dave is. And initially, Dave is wondering, did my dad get in trouble? Did he do something wrong? Mike Navarro must share the terrible news with his only son. That his mother was gone. His mother had been murdered in cold blood. Dave went into shock. And then right after that, he began to start to question, wait a second, I was supposed to have been at mom's house last night. I could have been murdered there. In 1967, David Michael Navarro is born in Santa Monica, California. Years earlier, his father Mike, an advertising executive, meets his mother Connie at the office and is swept off his feet. Connie, in the 60s and 70s, was a beautiful, blonde model who was often featured in magazines, on television shows, even as one of the premier models on The Price is Right. Mike was smitten with this blonde bombshell. And almost immediately, they started dating, and they would eventually get married. Sadly, by the time Dave Navarro turned seven, his parents decide to split up. When they divorced, it was amicable, and they each agreed that their primary focus had to be on raising their son, Dave. And so they stayed on very good terms. They stayed as very close friends. So Connie steps up as the loving and independent single mother. Ralph Defonso, retired FBI special agent. Connie was an excellent mother. She was very close to Dave. They were best of friends. He just thought the world of his mother. Despite the fact that Dave would spend a decent amount of time with his father... Connie was the one that Dave looked to for support and for guidance and for love. Nearly 3,000 miles away in New York, a 38-year-old bodybuilder looks to make his mark in the Big Apple. John Riccardi was a New Yorker through and through. He was a guy who never really held down a full-time job except for being a full-time con man. John McCarty was a wannabe mob guy, but the bottom line was he was just a small-time thug who was a burglar. Working with a partner, John Dean Riccardi uses deception to disguise his crimes. The M.O. was Riccardi and his longtime burglar partner would 
dress up and pose as wealthy real estate entrepreneurs and go to properties for sale and case the joints. Come back later, burglarize them, steal the goods. Riccardi was so good at actually breaking in that oftentimes the owner come home and had no idea they'd been burglarized. He would take discreet items and he'd of course steal jewelry and get the cash. Eventually, Riccardi's crimes catch up with him. This guy had a rap sheet from New York for possession of stolen property and burglary tools and attempted burglary. He probably had five or six arrests. He spent very little time in jail. In the late 70s, John Dean Riccardi reaches a personal and professional crossroad. His marriage broke up. He was now a convicted felon who was known in New York. His gig was up. We needed to find a place that was big enough and had enough opportunity for him to continue his crime ring, but at the same time be far enough away that he couldn't be linked to New York in any sort of meaningful way. So he decided on Los Angeles. What better place than L.A.? All of the money that's out there, all of the glitz and the glamour, all of the opportunities for a con man to continue his conning. Riccardi moves out to the city of Angels and immediately embraces the me culture. He was so charming. He was an amateur bodybuilder. He was an attractive guy. He's got a great physique. He's kind of flirty. He's flashy. He is vain and mysteriously wealthy. Connie Navarro, now the owner of a gift shop, is invited to a Super Bowl party by a shop neighbor in West L.A. And almost immediately after she walks into the party, she sees a very well-built, attractive guy who starts talking to her. The attractive guy is that New York transplant, John Dean Riccardi. So when Connie meets John Riccardi, she's smitten by him. He's attractive. Riccardi himself is smitten with her as well. There's an instant chemistry with them. Connie is stunningly beautiful. He becomes literally possessed by her. Connie and Dean Riccardi begin a whirlwind romance. As a result, a 13-year-old Dave Navarro must adjust to a new man in his mother's life. Dave Navarro had seen a number of men come in and out of Connie's life over the years since the divorce. But for some reason, when John Dean Riccardi came into her life, it was different. Dave saw John as a strong, confident figure and immediately took a liking to him. He spends four nights a week over there, does his laundry over there. Dave likes John Riccardi. He calls him Dean. He really considers him a trusted friend, and he looks up to him almost as a father figure. Well, I think Dave liked knowing that this guy was from New York. This guy's a weightlifter. This guy's pretty smooth. This guy drives a Cadillac. This guy, he's a shaker and a mover. But the con man Riccardi hides his criminal past from the Navarros. John's entire past was a mystery. He would do almost everything in his power to keep it that way. And Riccardi's obsession with Connie 
devolves into something far more sinister. There's something about her that just set him off. In the early 1980s, future rock star Dave Navarro and his single mother, Connie, unwittingly shared their home with career criminal John Riccardi. A serial burglar and con man, Riccardi seduces the Navarros with his strength and charisma. But it's only a matter of time before this charming crook is exposed and he transforms into something much more savage. By the time Dave Navarro reaches his early teens, he's already a talented musician. First by learning the piano, then by taking up the guitar. His father, Mike, buys his first acoustic at a garage sale. What was different about Dave Navarro and the way he played was his grasp of the music. He could play anything on command. He had an ear that was unlike any other guitar player. Once Dave hears the guitar mastery of Jimi Hendrix, he's changed as a musician forever. He says, I have to find out more about that guy. I have to find out more about how he plays the guitar. And I think in some ways he tried to replicate the Hendrix sound, but in other ways he wanted to invent a new sound. By late 1982, after dating close to two years, Connie Navarro and John Dean Riccardi start hitting a rough patch. Riccardi seems to disappear for days at a time. John Riccardi was sharp enough not to divulge what he was really about. He kept everything under wraps. He would disappear for a couple weeks or so. I'm going back to New York to see my father. Using that excuse, that's a code for I'm going to go out and do some burglaries. The amounts of money that he obtained through these burglaries was really off the charts. It was in the millions. The guy was dripping with money, and of course it was because he was stealing it from other people. Despite John Dean Riccardi's insatiable need for precious items, he believes his most valuable possession is Connie Navarro. Riccardi was a very possessive man, and Connie felt crowded by his jealousy. He was pathologically jealous. She talked to the mailman. It was like, who are you talking to? Why are you talking to him? He was very controlling of every aspect of her life. Connie Navarro rejects John Riccardi's jealousy and secrecy. She was a very free spirit, an independent person, and she didn't like being a possession. As time went along, that frustration turned into anger, which turned into mistrust. And though she appreciated the relationship that Riccardi had with her son, there was just something about him that remained too much of a mystery for her to be comfortable with. Navarro wants to end her relationship, but Riccardi will not let her go. Connie tried to break up with John Dean Riccardi on at least a half dozen occasions, but he is a master manipulator, so he was always able to win her back. He would say things like, I'm going to kill myself, and, oh, I don't want to be alone at Christmas time. Can you hang out with me? Can you talk to me? Can you call me? So she's like, okay, okay, it's Christmas. Let's get back together. She was just a lovely person, and he took advantage of that. 
By the end of 1982, Connie Navarro must face a financial reality. The gift shop she operates needs fast cash to stay afloat. She had talked about closing up shop. At that point, in yet another desperate attempt to keep her, John Dean Riccardi offered her $50,000 so that she could keep her business open. She politely declined and finally decided to break off the relationship once and for all. By January of 1983, Connie Navarro closes her gift shop and ends her relationship with John Dean Riccardi. Connie had had it. She was done. She told him it was over and he needed to move on. But he couldn't take no, because if he can't have her, no other man is going to have her. Seemingly overnight, Riccardi goes from being a possessive boyfriend to something far worse. John Dean Riccardi devolved into a crazed maniac. There is no other way to put it. He spent his entire existence stalking and plotting against Connie. There's something about her that just set him off. Now free of Riccardi and in search of a new job, Connie Navarro takes a business meeting. She has a dinner meeting with an ad executive who had flown in from Connecticut. He was staying in a hotel and rented a car and met Connie at a restaurant. And at the end of the dinner, the ad exec, who was happily married, gave her a little peck on the cheek to say goodnight. When he gets back to his hotel room, he receives a phone call from a man who has a very strong New York, New Jersey accent and says, What the hell are you doing kissing my girlfriend? And the man doesn't identify himself. And the ad exec says, this was very innocent. I'm a happily married man. I have no intentions towards your girlfriend. Stay away from my girlfriend, Connie. And if you ever try to do anything with her again, I will break her knees. Her knees, not his knees. Wouldn't any Jell's boyfriend say I'm going to break your knees if you kiss my girlfriend again? No, he's going to break Connie's knees. The next morning. The ad executive gets another threatening call. Same voice on the other end of the phone, same thick New York accent, but this time it's even creepier. The caller says that he knows the flight itinerary of the ad agency exec, and he knows where he lives in Connecticut. How would you like it if I flew to Connecticut and visited your wife? You leave my girlfriend alone. And when the ad exec got back to Connecticut, he called Connie and he said, I just got a call from your boyfriend. There's only one way that the caller would know all of these details about his travels. And that would be by breaking into his rental car. John Dean Riccardi makes tracking Connie Navarro his only ambition as he stalks her every move. As he was getting up from the table, he made a gesture with a gun like this shooting her. But his reign of terror spills over to threaten Connie's teenage son, Dave Navarro. He handcuffs him. Dave's like, no, man, please, please don't. If you like what you're hearing, check out the Real Crime TV series on Reels Channel. You'll find chilling true stories of capital offenders brought to justice like Chris Watts, the Colorado killer dad, the Turpins, whose children grew up in a real-life house of horrors, 
and a new report on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Plus, there are new episodes of Murder in the Family on the way, including reports on Sean P. Diddy Combs, Robert Blake, and the Manson family. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. In January 1983, 15-year-old guitarist Dave Navarro and his single mother, Connie, need a fresh start. After two years of dating, Connie Navarro ends her relationship with serial burglar John Dean Riccardi. But what she does not know is that John Riccardi has no intention of letting her go. By February 1983, serial burglar John Dean Riccardi spends his days and nights stalking and tormenting Connie Navarro. He would break into her car and disconnect wires. And when she got into the car and it wouldn't start, he would be standing there hovering over her. Connie was at dinner with some friends and Riccardi just showed up at this restaurant, sat down at the table, staring at Connie for like three to five minutes. Her friends were like, hey, Dean, hi, uh, what's going on? He doesn't talk, he just sits and stares at her threateningly. And Riccardi finally gets up, he makes a motion right at Connie's head, like he's gonna shoot her. I can kill you anytime I want, because you belong to me. He broke into her apartment time and time again. He went in through the balcony. He picked the front lock of the door. He was in her house, rifling through her possessions, listening to her answering machine, seeing if she's getting calls from men. Is she seeing somebody else? When Connie confronts Riccardi about his break-ins, he makes a chilling threat. He said, no locks are going to keep me out of your house. I'm not really going to go away. He put it out there to her. No alarm systems are going to stop me. He was going to be around. He did not go away. By the end of February, John Dean Riccardi takes his stalking mania to the next level. In one of the more egregious and scary incidents for Connie, John Dean Riccardi put a gun to her and said he wanted to take her away on a trip for the weekend. She was able to talk him into only taking her to a local L.A. hotel because she thought if he did anything to harm her, at least there would be people around that could hear what was going on. At the end of the weekend, he lets her go. She realizes that this man is unstable. She's frightened of him. She's afraid to sleep in her own bed. She's afraid to walk outside her apartment. She ends up writing a letter to Riccardi saying, I'm so sorry you feel so angry and feel the need to punish and for vengeance. But you've accomplished your goal because I feel like I'm a walking dead person. Eventually, a 15-year-old Dave Navarro must face off with his mother's dangerous and volatile former boyfriend. Dave Navarro is sick and decides to stay home from school. His mother goes out for a run, and all of a sudden, he hears this noise, and he goes to see what's going on, and he catches John Dean Riccardi out of the corner of his eye, breaking into the home. He's scared, so he goes into the bathroom and hides behind a shower curtain. 
Dave hears Riccardi go downstairs listening to his mom's answer machine, listening to the messages. So he sort of goes into the hall and pretends, Mom, Dean, is anybody here? I hear somebody trying to get in. David used some skills that we teach in law enforcement, hostage survival skills. He didn't get upset. He didn't start yelling at him. He didn't try to tell him what to do. He kept calm. Playing innocent, Riccardi assures Dave no one is trying to break in. And then he asks him to come into Connie's bedroom and sit and talk to him for a minute. At that point, John Dean Riccardi pulls a gun out from underneath Connie's bed. Riccardi starts to say he misses Dave's mother so much. He wants her to come back. And if she doesn't, he might kill himself or do something else horrible. With the gun pointing at him, Dave Navarro freaks out and tries to run away. John Dean Riccardi chases him and puts him in the bathroom. With Dave cornered in the bathroom, Riccardi pulls out a set of handcuffs. First he wanted to handcuff him around the toilet, and Dave's like, no, man, please, please don't. And he goes, okay. So he handcuffs Dave behind his back. At that point, John Dean Riccardi hears Connie come home from her run, and he says to Dave, keep quiet, keep your mouth shut, don't say a word, stay here. Dave is scared for his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He is terrified that John Dean Riccardi is going downstairs to kill his mother, and then he'll come back up and kill him. And Dave hears an argument. He hears somebody being slapped. Connie yells up, Dave, are you okay? Dave said, yes, Mom, I'm all right. He doesn't want to let on that anything has happened in this last-ditch effort to hopefully save his mother and save himself. Riccardi comes up the stairs, undoes the handcuffs on Dave's hands, and lets him go free. But not before he looks him straight in the eyes and says, do not tell your mother about any of this. As a young teen, Dave Navarro, he didn't want Riccardi to kill himself. At the same time, he had this immense fear that either he or his mother would end up dead at the hands of this man. Fearing for both Dave's and her own safety, Connie Navarro turns to a man she trusts. What Connie does is she reaches back to her ex-husband, Mike, and he lends her all the support he can. He says, move in with me. This is dangerous. This is serious. You don't know what this man's capable of. He has a gun. He's kidnapped you. He's brandished a gun in your face. By early March, John Dean Riccardi becomes completely unhinged. On the night of March 3rd, a former girlfriend waits to meet John Riccardi at a West L.A. restaurant. He's late for dinner, but when he does arrive, she cannot believe what she sees. He was a mess. He was sweaty. He was shaking. She had never seen him like this. All he talked about was Connie. He confides in her about some of the stalking, about Connie breaking it off with him. And he starts to tell of details of some of the things that he has done to try and keep Connie in his life. He said, look, will you do me a favor? Will you call her for me? 
because she won't answer the phone if she knows I'm calling. So they go out to a payphone in the street, and he dials the number, and he's listening in on the receiver, and it's just the answering machine. And it's, hi, it's Connie. Dave, please leave a message. And Riccardi blows up because that bitch, she won't answer the phone. Furious, Riccardi decides to call it a night. He and his friend part ways in the parking lot. She follows him out to his car, and he takes off his sport jacket to throw it in the trunk. She notices two things when he does that. Number one, that he's wearing a white sweater underneath his sport jacket. And number two, she sees a gun in the trunk of the car. And I think at that moment, if you were to look back, he made his mind up. That was it. Riccardi drives into the darkness of the night, just four miles from the Navarro condo. John Dean Riccardi was on a mission, and nothing was going to stop him. And before the night ends, two innocent lives will be stolen from Dave Navarro. Riccardi has descended into complete depths of madness. Dave Navarro, famed guitarist and television personality, captivates audiences with his musical skill and colorful personality. But long before the cheers of adoring fans, Navarro is threatened by a crazed stalker bent on controlling his mother, Connie. Having been confronted at gunpoint, both Connie and Dave Navarro know that former boyfriend John Dean Riccardi is armed and dangerous. But what they don't know is what he'll do next. Connie Navarro and close friend Sue Jory return home for a nightcap. At around 10.30 p.m., Connie makes her way up to her second-floor bedroom, only to find John Dean Riccardi. He did make access through the skylight window. He's waiting for him. That anger is building, and it's building, and it's building. And I really believe this was the final argument that they had. I think she told him, you are out of my life, this is the end of it. He went from zero to 60 with rage. Angry and rejected. Riccardi decides to finally end the relationship with Connie. John Riccardi had a gun. He shot her twice in the chest using a pillow as a silencer. And Sue Jory comes running up the steps and he shoots her in the jaw, goes through her neck. She falls dead on the floor. He tries to clean up the scene and make it look like an intruder. He hides Connie's body in the linen closet, stuffs her in there, stuffs the pillow on her. He takes Sue's body, drags it into the main bedroom, Connie's bedroom, face down. Ex-husband Mike Navarro discovers the two bodies the following day and calls 911. Police descend on the Navarro condo to process the murder scene. They found Riccardi's fingerprint in the laundry closet. Very quickly, they had an arrest warrant out for him. The Los Angeles police rage on Dean Riccardi's apartment. They found a treasure trove of evidence. They found guns. They found ammunition. They found handcuffs. They found everything 
that a police investigator would want to find in the home of a suspected killer. The only thing they didn't find was John Dean Riccardi. After the killings, it's almost as if John Dean Riccardi became a ghost. He vanished. Certain John Riccardi has fled Los Angeles. Local authorities turn to the FBI for help. Once he crossed the state lines to avoid prosecution, the Los Angeles Police Department would contact the FBI and we get these cases assigned to us. It would be up to us to go out and obtain a federal warrant, which gives all the resources of the FBI to track down these fugitives. What FBI agent DeFonso soon discovers is that career criminal John Dean Riccardi knows how to hide. He was probably the most cunning person I've tracked in my bureau career. It's easy to catch people that don't have resources to stay out there. It's hard to catch people that have resources. And John Riccardi had resources, he had money, and he was organized. While Riccardi is on the run, a teenage Dave Navarro pours his energies into his music. He joins the Notre Dame High School Band, where he meets fellow bandmate Stephen Perkins. In 1985, the two form the alternative rock band Jane's Addiction. Dave Navarro in the alternative music realm is a legend. This is a guy that was seen as a phenom on the guitar. You look at Guns N' Roses, you look at Nine Inch Nails. These are bands that essentially begged Dave Navarro to play with them. That was how much Dave Navarro was coveted, and that was how much he was respected as a guitarist. Still haunted by his mother's death, Navarro suffers from survivor's guilt. Dave Navarro was supposed to be at his mother's house the night that she and her best friend were slaughtered. Dave Navarro spent that evening at his father's house. So Dave has to live the rest of his life thinking to himself, if he were at home that night, would he have been murdered? And while he was very successful in terms of his music career, he was also very much going down a road of addiction. It started with marijuana. It eventually graduated into Dave Navarro being a full-fledged heroin addict. All the while, Dave Navarro fears Riccardi may one day land on his doorstep. Dave, for years, was afraid Riccardi was going to come back and kill him. You know, he's off pursuing his music career, but he doesn't know where this man is. Is he going to return? After six years of searching, the FBI is no closer to catching the fugitive, John Dean Riccardi. We came up with nothing concrete that led us in a particular direction. We had no way of getting information out like you could today. So in 1989, I turned to America's Most Wanted. They had a national audience. It was the first big crime-fighting show, able to get a lot of good information, and that was important to me. The investigation needed to be re-energized, it needed to be reinvigorated, and America's Most Wanted was the platform to do it. Having previously closed fugitive cases with the help of the show, 
DeFonso partners up with AMW producer Donna Brandt to capture Riccardi. And of course, it was a perfect story because it had beautiful people and it had a double homicide. And we were like, oh, my God, this guy is horrible. He needs to be put behind bars. They knew a lot about the suspect. And now they needed that one tip that would put that suspect behind bars and bring justice to the Navarro family. Once the Riccardi profile airs on America's Most Wanted, the show receives their first tip from the audience. Riccardi was alive. He'd been seen at a gym in New York. Ralph and his team descended on the gym, and they found that Riccardi hadn't been there for the past five days, and he was in the wind. With few additional leads to follow, America's Most Wanted airs the Riccardi story again. And in the second airing, we got a big tip about Riccardi having plastic surgery, and he had a new girlfriend. Agent DeFonso contacts plastic surgeons in New York and Florida, but ultimately finds Riccardi's doctor in New Jersey. Went over there, sat down with him, obtained photographs, knew what he looked like at this time. The FBI also finds an eyewitness that draws sketches of both the fugitive John Dean Riccardi and his new girlfriend. And then in 1990, AMW airs the Riccardi profile once more. After the third airing on America's Most Wanted, a tipster called and said they were 100% sure that they knew the whereabouts of John Dean Riccardi. Riccardi picked up and moved to Houston, Texas, using the alias William Faia. John Riccardi was setting up his new burglary operation out there. He had a place where he was staying, and I knew we were going to get one shot at Riccardi. FBI officers surround Riccardi's high-rise condominium. But will this career criminal continue to be one step ahead of law enforcement? He was going all over the place, so we sat and we waited and waited and waited. Or will John Riccardi make a desperate move to remain free? He decides to make a run for it, gets to the ledge, and he's threatening to jump. In the early 1990s, Dave Navarro and his family try to heal and move on from the shooting deaths of his mother Connie and family friend Sue Jory. As Dave's music career takes off, his mother's alleged killer, John Dean Riccardi, evades capture for years. With the help of the television show America's Most Wanted, the FBI locates Riccardi's new Houston, Texas address. Only one question remains. Will this fugitive finally be brought to justice? On January 4th, 1991, eight years on the run, it all ends for Riccardi at 1.30 in the afternoon. He is driving into his parking lot and he's surrounded by 10 FBI agents. He drove up in his Cadillac and we hit him. Our Houston agents took him in custody and without incident. Our camera crew was there, and it was like, did you see yourself on America's Most Wanted? And he said, I saw somebody who looked like me on America's Most Wanted. And then our reporter said, did you do it? Did you kill Connie? He goes, no, darling, I didn't. The charmer, even as he's carted off in handcuffs. Once Riccardi is taken into custody, the FBI searches his condo for evidence in the killings and past burglaries. And they are not disappointed. 
He had been collecting trophies of all the treasures that he had stolen. It was sort of a psychotic hoarder's dream. There were armoires filled with crystal clocks and Tiffany clocks like worth a million dollars. There was $87,000 of cash in a safe. They found, I think, close to half a million dollars worth of gold jewelry, rings, watches. In the VCR was a tape of America's Most Wanted. And the FBI finds a pamphlet mailed to Riccardi on March 3rd, 1983. Entitled, How to Vanish and Start Life Over Again Under a New Identity. The same night, Riccardi ambushed and killed the two women. After being hit by the federal charges, John Dean Riccardi sits in a Houston courthouse, awaiting legal proceedings. He decides to make a run for it. He runs toward the window, and he smashes out the window and gets to the ledge, the 10th floor ledge, overlooking the outside of the courthouse, and he's threatening to jump. And it's at 4.30 in the afternoon, and after a while, there's like 200 people down there egging him on. Come on, jump, jump. And news helicopters are flying over, and he's yelling at them. Oh, you parasites, why don't you go home and watch it on the TV? He was on that ledge for almost 12 hours. It was 3.40 in the morning when they finally got him off. But it made Time magazine. It was, it was crazy. And here I am, sitting in the America's Most Wanted newsroom. We're watching this live. And I'm like going, oh, my God, that's my future. <laughs> Riccardi serves three years in Texas for theft before being extradited to California, where finally he faces murder charges in the deaths of Sue Jory and Connie Navarro. Prosecutors were convinced that they had everything they needed and more to put John Dean Riccardi away for a long time or even to get the death penalty. It was a solid case. Once we called him, he was history. Prosecutors present two witnesses that recant Riccardi's confessions immediately following the shootings. First to testify is John's partner in burglary. He testified that Riccardi had phoned him the night of the murders, confessing and walking him through exactly how he had killed these two women. Riccardi's stepmother testified that Riccardi's dad had told her that Dean had killed these two women and had confessed to him on the phone. The prosecution also calls to testify 27-year-old celebrity guitarist Dave Navarro. Dave Navarro explains how his life was destroyed by this murder. He had been involved with heroin. He had been in and out of rehab. And he felt guilt for not having warned his mom of what had happened to him with Riccardi. It takes the jury in this double homicide case just eight hours to find John Dean Riccardi guilty. Ultimately, weeks later, a judge sentences John Dean Riccardi to the death penalty. For the Navarro family, that verdict of guilty isn't closure for the family because they're never going to get their loved one back. The Navarro family no longer had to live in fear that this man was going to come back and harm them anymore. In the years that follow, 
Dave Navarro goes on to lead a very colorful life. Here's a guy who's a wizard with the guitar who evolved into a TV star. He did the Ink Master show. He did Rockstar in Excess. By the age of 40, he had been married and divorced three different times. Most notably, he was married to Carmen Electra. Now in recovery, Dave Navarro uses his celebrity status to champion a cause very close to his heart. He's now focused his energy on helping other victims of domestic violence. Dave's a wonderful advocate. Sorry. I'm not sure why I'm getting emotional. I think it's, um... I think it's a difficult... It's so difficult for women to get out from under these situations. So I applaud Dave Navarro for leading the cause and helping others because he's seen it firsthand and he knows how dangerous and insidious it is and how easy it is to fall under the spell. In 2012, the justices of the Supreme Court of California overturned John Riccardi's death sentence, reducing it to life without parole. In order to put his troubled past behind him, Dave Navarro produces an autobiographical documentary called Morning Sun, detailing his life journey before and after his mother's brutal murder. Dave continues to deal with the demons of his past, but he grows ever stronger. Today, his fans of both stage and screen are delighted by the many offerings of this great talent, a wounded son of a beautiful and loving mother. I'm Geraldo Rivera. Next week on Murder in the Family. Oscar winner Jennifer Hudson. Three family members senselessly murdered. Her life changed forever. It only took one act to destroy it all. Murder in the Family. Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of Murder in the Family, including chilling reenactments and crime scene photos you'll only get on Reels Channel.